Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our exploration of the invention of air conditioning. Now, in the last episode, we focused on a lot of ancient techniques for versions of passive cooling. And some of these involved uh, like fans, circulation of air around the body or designing buildings to increase circulation of air. Some involved uh, chilling air by passing it through like underground channels of cold water, a particularly ingenious solution from ancient Persia. But today we're going to be getting into the modern science and chemistry of air conditioning. Yeah, because as we discussed in the last episode, all these various techniques of the past, they were they all range from like mild to moderate in their effects. Mm-hmm. And when used together, you know, they, they could improve the quality of life for the uh, individuals that were living with them. Mm-hmm. But modern air conditioning, as we'll explore, uh, was a huge game changer. Yeah. Now, this is going to be one of those episodes where we can't name a single person as the undisputed inventor of modern air conditioning. Instead, I think what we see is a lot of different engineers and inventors at different times coming up with new versions and variations of cooling and refrigeration technology. So it's going to be inevitable that we're not going to be able to talk about all of the people who contributed some important early experiment or design that led to modern refrigeration and air conditioning. Instead, we're going to be focusing on a few highlights we found interesting. Yeah, and likewise, we tend we're going to discuss some things that are more refrigeration based in the technology. Uh, but we're we're focusing mostly on on air conditioning, right. and yet at the same time, the history of these technologies uh, is kind of uh, interwoven. They're kind of interwoven with one another. Yeah, inherently, because uh, they're, they're both a- attempting to do a very similar thing, and that is to take a warm substance, be it uh, some water or a certain body of air, mm-hmm. and ch- and making them cooler or making them ap- absolutely cold. And in many cases, modern air conditioners and modern refrigerators work on the same principles. Not in every case, but Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases they do. Uh, And so the more I thought about this, the more I thought it would make sense to start with a brief, simplified explanation of how modern air conditioning generally works. And then we can, after that, go back in time and work our way up to it with some of these interesting stories about early stabs at it. So as we mentioned in the last episode, there are multiple ways to cool the air in a room or cool the people in a room. But the most common method today uses a system of hollow coils filled with a fluid called a refrigerant, which is usually something chosen because it has a low boiling point, meaning it changes from a liquid to a gas at a low temperature. And the fluid in this coil system flows constantly in a circuit that takes it back and forth between the inside and the outside of your house or whatever building or space you're trying to cool, converting back and forth between a liquid and a gas and carrying heat with it one way as it goes. So so the whole way an air conditioner works, the simple version is is just using this refrigerant to absorb heat from the air in your house and then dump it outside. And I'm not going to get into super technical chemistry or anything like that. We're just giving you the Cliff's Notes version here. So the Cliff's Notes version is when you've got this fluid, the refrigerant, it's in a cold liquid form. It flows through this coil on the inside of your house known as the evaporator coil. 
And these coils, they get they, there's a blower motor that blows the air over them really fast. And this causes these cold coils to absorb heat from the warm air inside your house and cool that air off in the process. The heat from the air is going into the coils. And then the nice cold air, of course, that, that results from this blows out your AC vents and is just – it's just now the indoor air that has been nice and dehumidified and cooled off by passing over these coils. The heat from the warm air inside your house heats up this fluid inside the coils and converts it from a liquid into a gas. And the air in your house can do this because the refrigerant, again, it's got a really low boiling point. So it's very easy to convert this liquid into a gas. Uh, this is something we see commonly in many early experiments with, with refrigeration and with air conditioning is they find some kind of chemical like ether or like alcohol alcohol that has a low boiling point, so it's easy to cause this evaporation. As we know from the last episode, evaporation sucks energy out of the surroundings. It's an energy-hungry process, and so it cools off everything around it. But now you've got these coils full of refrigerant that have absorbed the heat energy from the air in your house. And that heat energy has to go somewhere, right? It can't just disappear. It's got to be dumped. So the fluid then flows outside. And somewhere along the way here, often if you've got like a, you know, an, uh, an outdoor unit, uh, it will go through a compressor and that compressor will be in the outdoor unit. And the compressor is powered by a mechanical device that forcibly smashes that vapor and increases its pressure by using electrically powered components to reduce the volume. It smashes it down. And then this pressurized refrigerant flows through condenser coils. These are in the unit outside the house or in the part of the air conditioner that's sticking outside, which are another set of coils exposed to the outside air. And this, of course, it has another fan that rapidly blows the outside air over these coils. So the outside air rapidly absorbs the heat from the hot, compressed refrigerant inside the coils. So the heat gets just dumped out into the air outside. And this allows the refrigerant to cool off and condense back down into a liquid. And then finally, before the refrigerant can go through the evaporator coils inside again, it passes through a device called an expansion valve, which lowers the pressure that the compressor uh, forced into it. So now you're back to what you started with. You've got this low boiling point liquid that can again be exposed to the air inside your house, blowing that air over it really fast with a fan, and it cools the air down and removes humidity from it in the process. Yeah, when you lay it all out, it, it's a, it's this elaborate process. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's e again, it's easy to take air conditioning for granted when it is working, uh, but it does remind me how when when I was a kid, we would go to my my grandfather's house, and he uh, he had uh, window units in mm -hmm. uh, you know in the, the major rooms of the of the house, and when one was not was was not functioning, right. he he was a super handy guy, so he would take it out of the window and he would take it apart and uh, repair it and tinker with it. And I remember at the time just marveling at all the things that seemed to be going on inside of that air conditioning. Yeah, um, and he was able to patch it up and um, get it back in the window and functioning again. Yeah, it, it is weird. I, I tried like it's hard. I, I remember when I was younger not understanding how air conditioning worked and being kind of amazed by it. And and I, I even remember having it explained to me and like just it not clicking. And I, I got to admit, when we were preparing for this episode, I spent a long time like looking at the diagrams and mm -hmm. trying to hack at it and make sure like, OK, am I sure I'm understanding this right? Because it's not very intuitive. Right. It's And the thing is, it's household peers are rather intuitive, like a hot water heater. Yeah. It's rather simple. You know, you don't have to 
do much tinkering with it to understand it. I just explained to my son how one works the uh-huh. other day because I had neglected, I think, to ever like tell him where the hot water came from. Uh-huh. So I was like, oh, well, let's talk about where all the hot water went mm-hmm. uh, just now. Uh, likewise, uh, you know, the, a furnace uh, is a lot more uh, is a lot easier to understand. A washing machine, a dryer, an oven, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, the air conditioning requires a few more steps of understanding and really grasp what it's doing. Well, I think especially because it involves chemistry and phase changes having mm-hmm. to do with like uh, phase changes between liquid and gas and, and gas and liquid and compression and condensation and all that. So th- these things I think are less intuitive to us than just putting heat into something. Right. Uh, but another way you can think about an air conditioner is that it's a heater for outside. An air conditioner is just a heater from outside and the heat energy that it draws to heat the outside comes from the air in your house. <laughs> And, of course, it, it accesses that heat energy very uh, rapidly by, uh, by having this, this low boiling point liquid and blowing air over it really fast. All right. So we're, we're going to talk about how we got to this modern technological marvel that is the air conditioning unit. But before we get there, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, – we want to basically drop in on a favorite invention and stuff to blow your mind historical figure and that is, of course, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, yeah. So he actually did some early air conditioning style experiments. Yes. Now, to be clear, Ben Franklin did not invent air conditioning. And I uh, – th- th- it's interesting. You see this tidbit about Benjamin Franklin either correctly uh, attributed or sometimes incorrectly attributed show up on a lot of different air conditioning company websites. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's about – just you know, adding engaging content on the websites, or it's about you know uh, you know ranking and search, and so you just put some 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 fun content on there, getting some of that founding father mojo. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, uh, if you've read anywhere that Ben Franklin invented air conditioning, uh, he did not. I want to be clear on that. But he did experiment with the refrigerating effects of various liquids and the role evaporation plays uh, in the process. He experimented with Cambridge professor John Hadley using ether and a bellows to cool a mercury thermometer down to 25 below freezing. And this makes sense because while this is not exactly an air conditioning unit, it is basically taking from the same principles that will be employed in the kind of air conditioning unit we just described, having uh, something with a low boiling point like while water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius, the boiling point of ether, I think diethyl ether, is around 94 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. So it boils much more easily. Blowing air rapidly over a mass of ether is kind of like uh, the blower in a modern AC unit blowing air over an evaporator coil full of refrigerant. It rapidly evaporates and it steals energy from the surrounding air, thus cooling the air. So Franklin wrote about all of this uh, and about sort of the general knowledge of cooling technology that he was aware of in a 1758 letter to John Linning. And, uh, and this, this letter is available online and uh, I want to read, uh, read a portion of it here, uh, re- referring to the experiment that we just mentioned. Quote, from this experiment, one may see the possibility of freezing a man to death on a warm summer's day if he were to stand in a passage through which the wind blew briskly and to be wet frequently with ether, a spirit that is more inflammable than brandy or common spirits of wine. (laughs) Okay. uh, Franklin maybe knew something about brandy and wine. (laughs) No, no, I don't mean to. 
I imagine he did. I believe he did. Uh, but yeah, so he, he's talking about the evaporation principle then again, especially mm-hmm. if you have something with a very low boiling point. You like put alcohol or ether or something all over a person because it evaporates very readily and then you blow a fan on them. It will chill them even more than blowing a fan on like a person wet with water. Right. Now, this first part of the letter uh, about uh, freezing a man to death on a warm summer's day, uh, you see that thrown around a lot and it does show up on a number of air conditioning websites out uh-huh. there. But the rest of the, uh, the, the the letter is really cool, too. So I want to read the next passage of it that's a bit longer, okay. where he just talks about uh, refrigeration technology in general. Quote, It is but within these few years that the European philosophers seem to have known this power in nature of cooling bodies by evaporation. But in the East, they have long been acquainted with it. A friend tells me there is a passage in Bernier's travels through Indostan, written near 100 years ago, that mentions it as a practice in traveling over dry deserts in that hot climate to carry water in flasks wrapped in wet woolen cloths and hung on the shady side of the camel or carriage, but in the free air, whereby as the cloths gradually grow drier, the water contained in the flask is made cooler. They have likewise a kind of earthen pots, unglazed, which let the water gradually and slowly ooze through their pores so as to keep the outside a little wet, notwithstanding the continual evaporation, which gives great coldness to the vessel and the water contained in it. Even our common sailors seem to have had some notion of this property, for I remember that being at sea when I was a youth, I observed one of the sailors during a calm in the night, often wetting his finger in his mouth and then holding it up in the air to discover, as he said, if the air had any motion and from which side it came, and this he expected to do by finding one side of his finger grow suddenly cold, and from that side he should look for the next wind, which I then laughed at as a fancy." <laughs> what so people didn't like Ben Franklin at the time would not have accepted that the cold side of a wet finger is where the wind is coming from. That's funny. well in his youth, yeah. I, I assume. Yeah. So uh, this letter and and various other documents can be found at founders.archives.gov. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, a number of writings from uh, figures like uh, Ben Franklin there, and Ben Franklin's uh, writings are, are are typically worth checking out. A lot of his letters are just fantastic. There was one we quoted at length in a couple of stuff to blow your mind. Episodes we did about the early days of electricity yes. experiments, where Benjamin Franklin describes his attempts to uh, to kill and roast a turkey for a big party using Leyden jars. Yeah, yeah. Franklin is an interesting figure. Uh, it would be kind of potentially interesting to come back and look at him in greater uh, detail in a future episode of one of these uh, these shows because uh, he did have his hand in a lot of science. You know, he's a, mm-hmm. a true Enlightenment character. Mm-hmm. Um, you you tend not to see um, individuals involved in American politics so uh, involved in the sciences these days. Right. Now, before we get on to the, the more uh, recent notable attempts to actually create some kind of air conditioner for rooms, I guess we could briefly mention one other important figure around the same time in early refrigeration and cooling research, and that would be the Scottish physician and inventor William Cullen, who lived uh, 1710 to 1790, who invented a process for evaporative cooling in the 1750s, which he described in an essay from the mid-1700s with a hilariously bad title, quote, of the cold produced by evaporating fluids and of some other means of producing cold. Well, it's not that bad. 
Uh, basically, he got ethyl ether to boil by creating a partial vacuum. So you put ethyl ether, which has a low boiling point, in a chamber and then you uh, you lower the pressure in the chamber, which causes the liquid to boil at an even lower temperature and the evaporation that that causes, of course, again, sucks energy from the surroundings and has a rapid cooling effect on, on whatever's around this chamber. But we're going to find maybe our first real attempt at creating an air conditioner for a room, not in Scotland, not, uh, not in Ben Franklin's labs or in his experiments at Cambridge or wherever. We're going to go somewhere else. That's right. And you'll find out right after this break. All right, we're back. So I'm not saying it doesn't get hot in Scotland. But I know a place where it definitely gets hot uh, here in the United States, and that is, of course, uh, the panhandle of Florida. Did you ever live in Florida? No, but it's uh, – I've always uh, – well, not always, but I've uh, – much of my life has been lived in the American South. So Florida has always been a place uh, to go uh, yeah. for vacations and such. So generally in summer months when it is, uh, it is sweltering. Right. So we're going to be turning to a figure, a Florida man named John B. Gorey. Yes. Uh, so John B. Gorey lived 1803 through 1855, was an American physician, born in the West Indies, raised in South Carolina, educated in New York, and then he moved to Apalachicola, Florida in 1833. And Apalachicola is a small coastal town in the panhandle of Florida. It's near St. George's Island, I think, uh, which I... At some point in my life, I think I actually went on a vacation too. Yeah, I mean, I've been to Apalachicola, and I, I did uh, not realize its significance in history. I mean, I, I've, obviously, I didn't spend a lot of time, or I might have seen a statue of the man we're talking about now. Uh, but of course, you might imagine Florida in the 1800s. There's going to be a good amount of disease going around. This is going to be basically a tropical disease environment. Yeah. Uh, so while he was in Apalachicola, he practiced medicine, but he also studied these tropical diseases, especially yellow fever. Yeah. And as miasma theory was still in fashion at the time, he considered bad air to be the key factor in these illnesses. Now, we've discussed miasma theory before. Uh, I know we discussed it on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I can't mm -hmm. remember if it came up on invention or not. I'm not sure, but basically miasma theory was the idea that diseases – it was it was a pre-germ theory hypothesis on the origins of disease that postulated that diseases were spread by bad air or bad vapors, often associated with bad smelling things like carrion or like swamps or marshes. Right. Uh, but then there were also more supernatural versions of it that believed that like bad vapors would come down off of the planets or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember the, discussing those. The planets, uh, not, the planets in graveyards, uh, for instance, uh, certainly, um, you know, not places you're going to catch a supernatural illness like this. But, of course, you can see w where the correlation comes in when you're dealing with unburied corpses or yes. swamplands yes. that are loaded with, say, mosquitoes that are, of course, uh, uh, you know, carrying potential human diseases. Exactly right. Yeah, I think the swamplands thing being a, a really important uh, point of comparison. There were these ideas of like night vapors coming off of the marsh or the swamp mm -hmm. where the real problem is that you've got a mosquito giving you malaria or giving you yellow fever. But I, I also want to say that I think it wasn't just a belief in miasma theory that led to a desire to cool the air in hospital rooms for patients suffering from diseases like yellow fever and malaria. I think part of it was also just the idea of the comfort of the patients. But something this did make me think about was that it's interesting that it seems like we have a 
I was going to say natural association. I don't know if it's a natural instinctual association or if it's learned, but this association between cold fluids and cleanliness mm -hmm. and warm fluids with uncleanliness. Like I don't think that's just me. I think that's a common cultural association. Like cold air and cold water automatically feel clean while stagnant warm air and tepid water feel dirty. And I don't – do you think that's like something, you know, from deep in our brains and our primate ancestors or is that just something we learn in life through culture? I mean, I, I don't know. I've never really thought about it much. I mean, obviously, if you're in a hot room, you're likely to be sweaty. And if you're sweaty, uh, over time, that can produce a certain uh, odor. You can feel – you know, dirtier uh, mm. because of it, I guess. And we and and certainly in the air conditioning age, you come to associate the outdoors as the place where you sweat, and yeah. sweat being the product of, of toiling. Uh, uh, and then inside, you're going to have access to air conditioning, and this is going to be a place, uh, you know, generally you know, of, of more relaxation mm. uh, and uh, and maybe cleaner activities. You're not you know, getting as dirty. But uh, at any rate, uh, Gorey w definitely was responding to the idea that a hospital should be cool. Yes, uh, in part because of the uh, you know the, of the miasma theory that you need some you need some good air in there, mm -hmm. which means you need some cold air. Right, cool it down, especially for those feverish patients. Yes, uh, and you know there, there's still some truth to this today. I mean, you go into a hospital now, not because of miasma theory, but hospitals now tend to be pretty chilly places. Mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, that's really come to be the case of most like large, you know, buildings of, like schools, libraries. Like, mm -hmm. These are these are places that are refuges of of the cool in hot climates usually. So Gorey wanted to cool down the hospital, okay. and his first uh, approach to this simply involved hanging tubs of ice from the ceiling, which is actually a pretty solid idea, uh, given that 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 cool air is going to descend. Right? Yeah. Uh, but of course, this brings us back to the historic Roman problem uh, and, uh, and also I suppose the, the Aztec uh, problem as well of, of how to transport that ice. You know, if you're getting that ice from somewhere, uh, you've got to transport it all the way to your hospital and then hang it up in the ceiling. Yeah, and so at this time, we talked in the last episode about, of course, yeah, this Roman problem of like bringing snow down from the mountaintops. Snow or ice in ancient Rome, there were people who sold it, but it seems like it was something of a luxury, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to take a lot of work to bring snow down and some of it's going to melt on the way. Uh, so yeah, it's an expensive proposition. The large-scale transport of ice had actually only recently become a big business in, in Gori's time here. So in the 1830s or 40s, uh, due in large part to the efforts of a single ambitious businessman from Boston named Frederick the Ice King Tudor. Ah, like an Adventure Time. Okay. Yes. Oh, wait. I didn't know. Is there? There's a, yeah, there's an Ice King on Adventure Time. He's, you know, he's a, a king, an evil king with, with ice-based powers, uh, but he is the Ice King. Okay. Well, maybe you be – I haven't seen this, so you'll be the judge of how well this fits with Frederick the Ice King Tudor. So Tudor's shipments of block ice traveled not only to customers in the American South, of course, they went to New Orleans and to Charleston and all over the place, but also all over the Caribbean from Havana to Martinique. They even went around the world to Brazil and to Europe and to India. In India, apparently, his ice was hugely popular. And the story of Frederick Tudor's ice business, I think, is in itself pretty fascinating. Basically, 
Tudor developed a process for mass harvesting of ice from frozen lakes and ponds in, uh, and I think rivers too, in the winter in New England. And then taking that ice harvested from these bodies of fresh water to warmer destinations down south where the ice was sold for various refreshing purposes, often for cooling drinks, uh, but at least occasionally for cooling rooms a la Gori. And this would have been, to most people, a very new thing at the time. Like, can you imagine how magical it must have seemed living your whole life in a tropical climate and then one day for the first time ever being served a cold drink with ice floating in it? Yeah, I mean, it, it must have been magical. Uh, you know, this this reminds me of uh, the, the film The Mosquito Coast. Uh-huh. Uh, did you ever see this with uh, Harrison, Harrison Ford? Ford? Mm-hmm. No, I haven't seen it, but I know about it. Yeah, well, the, you know, the plot, uh, the central plot involves this uh, this character played by Harrison Ford who's like a brilliant inventor and kind of eccentric and very opinionated and strong-willed mm-hmm. uh, individual. Uh, and he and they travel to – I can't remember if, it, if it's Belize or Costa Rica or if it was filmed in one of the two. One of the two. It's, uh, it travels down there with the idea of constructing this ice-generating machine mm-hmm. and bringing, bringing – ice to the people mm-hmm. and uh, so there, there's this wonderful s- scene where uh, they've, they've they've created the ice in the machine and they've they've transported it uh, wrapped in leaves to, to preserve it to show it to some uh, native peoples and by the time they get there they're unwrapping the the leaves trying to find this tiny bit of remaining ice mm-hmm. and like the, there's and it's just you know virtually all melted away at the uh-huh. core. Uh, well, it also makes me think about the opening of the novel 100 Years of Solitude by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. In, in the first chapter of that, there's this, you know, the, the mythical history of mm-hmm. this family and there's a story about the patriarch taking his children to see uh, – the, I think a traveler brings a chest that has ice in it. None of them had ever seen ice before. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean it would have, it would have been a magical occurrence. Again – uh, one of the, the marvelous privileges of the modern age that most of us uh, take for granted. And how – I mean I don't want to – like it seems absurd now that you would harvest ice from a cold climate, put it in a ship and mm-hmm. ship it to another part of the world. But uh, this turned into a huge business. The, the Ice King, I, I should say, had a lot of early failures <laughs> in like the first decade of the 1800s. For example, some of his early shipments just melted at their port of arrival before they could be sold and used because there were no ice houses to keep the ice insulated after it showed up. Mm-hmm. But over the years, Tudor improved the feasibility and the efficiency of his business in quite a few different ways. A, a, a few interesting examples I was reading about. One was, of course, establishing ice houses, right, to store the ice when it arrived in the warmer climates. Another was this quest to find better insulating packing material to keep the ice cold while it was being shipped. Originally, he used straw but experimented with stuff like rice and even coal dust. But later he found that pine sawdust worked best of all to keep the ice cold. Interesting. And then later he partnered with an inventor named Nathaniel Jarvis Wyeth who, yep, related to the painter Andrew Wyeth. Uh, and Nat Wyeth came up with lots of improved methods and tools for Tudor's business, including designs for insulated double-walled above-ground ice houses and crucially for a horse-drawn ice cutter that works kind of like a furrow plow. It would saw out ice blocks in a grid pattern as it was dragged behind the horse. And then these ice blocks that were sawed out could be easily broken apart from one another and floated down to a retrieval site. And this apparently greatly streamlined the uh, harvesting process and decrease the cost of ice. And I've got a picture here, Robert, you can see of what this uh, horse-drawn ice cutter looks like. But ah. 
it's kind of it's surreal watching these people standing on the surface of a frozen lake that's just cut into a grid. It looks like graph paper. Wow, yeah, they're just divvying it up to ship it out. And in fact, I, I found this historical connection too good to miss. The American writer Henry David Thoreau encountered commercial ice harvesters at work in Walden Pond. Oh. And he wrote about them in his book Walden. Do you mind if I read part of this quote here, Robert? Oh, please do. Okay, so uh, Thoreau writes... Thus, for 16 days, I saw from my window a hundred men at work like busy husbandmen with teams and horses and apparently all the implements of farming, such a picture as we see on the first page of the almanac. And as often as I looked out, I was reminded of the fable of the lark and the reapers or the parable of the sower and the like. And now they're all gone. And in 30 days more, probably, I shall look from the same window on the pure sea green Walden water there, reflecting the clouds and the trees and sending up its evaporations in solitude, and no traces will appear that a man has ever stood there. Perhaps I shall hear a solitary loon laugh as he dives and plumes himself, or shall see a lonely fisher in his boat like a floating leaf, beholding his form reflected in the waves, where lately a hundred men securely labored. Thus it appears that the sweltering inhabitants of Charleston and New Orleans, of Madras and Bombay and Calcutta, drink at my well." Oh, and he, he also goes on to, to contemplate his, his fascination with the philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita uh, and eventually concludes by saying that, uh, that the pure Walden water is mingled with the sacred water of the Ganges. Huh. And I guess in mind there, he just has the fact that the ice from his pond is maybe going to end up in India in somebody's drink. Oh, yeah. It's kind of the reverse of uh, the, the, the argument I've heard before that all water has been dinosaur pee. You know? <laughs> it's true. All water has been Henry David Thoreau's bath water. <laughs> like, all, every, every chunk of ice in every drink you've ever had, Henry David Thoreau washed his butt with. <laughs> It's probably true. It's statistically, it's true. Yeah. Well, you know, this this brings this boy the the, the whole question of water purification, um, mm -hmm. the process of water purification, is interesting because, um, uh, you know, we, we could easily do a whole well, we could easily do a whole episode on just technology involved in purifying water, but also the psychology of water purification, uh -huh. like what, how many steps need to be there, organic or industrial, before we will accept. That we are drinking something that was once potentially urine or bath water uh -huh. uh, that was essentially gray or, uh, or or worse water at some point is now our drinking water. Um, it's uh, it's it's quite fascinating when you start breaking down the psychology. Yeah, well, I mean, H two O molecules are H two O molecules. It's yep. like it, just because H two O was once part of poop or was once part of blood or was once you know something else, now it's not anymore. Yeah, like why do we? That's that's gross, but we're okay with having been stardust. You know, that's <laughs> right. I mean, we kind of pick and choose, don't we? I mean, it doesn't bring the poop with it <laughs> unless it does. But we still want to think that, right? We still yeah. we still want to think that it is still in some way poop. In the same way that we might uh, we we might listen to the song Woodstock and think, yeah, there is a piece of a star inside me, and it's burning <laughs> bright with the you know with the power of a, of an entire solar system. That's a good connection, Robert. Uh, that's also it's a bit of that Thoreau energy in yeah. there. I I know some people actually today think Thoreau is kind of boring, but I found that passage rather beautiful. Yeah, I did as well. Uh, so anyway, uh, it, by the middle of the 19th century, shipped ice was this huge business. And as you might imagine, it could also be fickle, right? Because it's ice. 
It's not the most stable of commodities. Like slight variations in the weather patterns elsewhere in the world could potentially mess with supply and demand for ice in a major way, leading to the dreaded ice shortage. So now you're living somewhere hot and you've got a taste for ice, but maybe sometimes the ice market could get mighty tight. Right. And it's one thing if you're just you're looking for ways to, uh, you know, to, to uh, cool your drink down. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at like Gory was at a hospital a situation where you you believe that there is a there's a there's a strong advantage in having a, a cooled down hospital room, uh, then you're going to want to have some way to produce ice uh, locally. So he began became increasingly obsessed with the problem of artificial ice production, and so much so that in 1845 he gave up medicine uh, to look into this full time. And uh, he actually acquired patents and uh, he, he had acquired patents in 1830s, in the 1830s for an ice machine that employed cooling caused by rapid gas expansion. Mm-hmm. It used pumps to compress air by injecting uh, uh, it with water. Compressed air was then uh, submerged in coils within a bath of cooling water. The interjected water condensed out in a holding tank. Uh, then the compressed air was released into a tank of lower pressure brine, bringing the brine tank down to 26 degrees or less. Metal containers of water were lowered in, becoming bricks of ice, which could then be withdrawn. Okay. And, so, and then, you could, then he could you know, hang them uh, or mm-hmm. position them in the uh, hospital rooms, uh, or they, they could be used as such to then cool them down. Right. So he's using compression and expansion mm-hmm. of these substances. The rapid expansion cools everything around it. He's using that to cool water and create ice. Now, one question is why is this often considered a predecessor or an early uh, step in the creation of air conditioning when it is really refrigeration? It's a refrigeration right. process. I mean, air conditioning is a refrigeration process, but he was creating ice. I think it's probably because Gorey planned to use the blocks of ice to cool hospital rooms. Right. Yeah. That- that was his initial um, you know, entry into the world of refrigeration. Uh, so t- today he's, he's recognized a lot more, especially in Apalachicola. Uh, you, know, I, you can find a statue of him there. Uh, and, uh, but at the, at the time, uh, he had problems with his invention, and uh, Jacob Perkins beat him out for the title of Father of the Refrigerator in 1835. And uh, Gorey's continued efforts uh, to get his own invention off the ground failed for a few different reasons, and he died without achieving his, his goal of you know, becoming the master of refrigeration in 1855. Yeah, for some reason, Gorey faced a lot of harsh opposition and ridicule, especially in the press. I was reading a paper by the American historian Raymond Arsenault about the impact of air conditioning on the culture of the American South. And Arsenault just notes that uh, most of Gorey's contemporaries were dismissive of his achievements. And as an example, one journalist, I think writing for the New York Globe, uh, at some point described Gorey by saying, quote, a crank down in Florida thinks he can make ice as good as almighty God. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's it, that is ridiculous, and uh, and clearly, um, you know, shows some some anti-Floridian uh, bias. Uh-huh. Uh, however, you know that that kind of headline wouldn't be completely out of out of line today. I mean, you still see a lot of headlines about about Florida and kind of like you know the stigmatization of of Florida, mm. and so you can imagine stories today about a crazed doctor who's quit his medical practice to try and uh, make the perfect ice, right? To play. God by creating ice. Right. And, you know, the same people might, if, if the story were taking place in, say, Brooklyn, it might be something different. Like, oh, this doctor, he gave up his nine to five so he could pursue making the perfect 
perfect cube of ice for your uh, for you know for your cocktails or your your scotch. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, I mean, it, it is always sad on this show when we have to look at an inventor and see that they, you know, they, if they died penniless or they died without find, finding the recognition that they sought in life, only achieving it after death. Uh, I'm, I'm always going to end up um, as much as possible, like, siding with those individuals. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, well, so it's possibly because of this mer- merciless ridicule that Gorey failed to attain or retain investors for his, his invention. I think he had one major investor, but then that investor died, mm-hmm. and then he had trouble yes. getting other investors. Uh, and so what did Gorey himself attribute the failure of his invention to? Well, to some extent, he blamed – Guess who? The Ice King. Well, he's up against Big Ice, right? Exactly. He blamed, he suspected that Frederick the Ice King Tudor had arranged or financed a campaign of smears and disparagement against him in order to pre- uh, protect Tudor's own ice shipping business from competition. Now, was Gory correct in his suspicions? I don't know. But if so, it certainly wouldn't be the first or the only time that somebody used dirty tricks to protect an obsolete business model from legitimate competition. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you don't have to put on a tinfoil hat to imagine a, a major industry or corporation doing this. They are still doing this sort of thing. Now, toward the end of his life, Gorey seemed resigned. Uh, apparently, he, he, he wrote that uh, he thought America was simply not ready for refrigeration. But maybe, maybe America was ready for refrigeration because beginning around the 1850s, there did begin to be some commercial applications for refrigeration uh, developed by some other inventors and engineers, including in food and the the food and beverage industries, particularly, I believe, in meat packing and meat Mm. shipping. Yeah, it comes down to the necessity, right? Like Mm. where are the areas where there is a definite uh, necessity for refrigeration technology? Right. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will meet the father of air conditioning. All right, we're back. So here we come to a figure sometimes called the father of air conditioning. I don't know if that title is actually deserved, but <laughs> it, you know, it, it's what a lot of people have said. So I don't think there is a way to argue that the guy we're about to talk about was really the first person to create a cooling and humidity control system. Uh, but because of his important role in the history of this technology, credit for the invention of the first modern air conditioning system is often given to an American engineer named Willis Haviland Carrier, who designed an air conditioning system while working for a company called Buffalo Forge in 1902. Now, Willis Carrier was born on November 26, 1876 in Angola, New York, and he grew up on a farm. And one story that I found interesting was that apparently as a child, Carrier had difficulties with math in school, even though he would go on to become uh, a successful engineer. And we, we do have to consider the source here, but there was a biography of Willis Carrier written in the late 1940s by E. Cloud Wampler, who was the chairman of the Carrier Corporation. Uh, Wampler died in 1973. But to the extent that we can believe this story, uh, it is, as Wampler tells it, that when Carrier was nine years old, he had an experience that he believed to be the turning point in his life. And, in, and it was that in school, he was learning about fractions and he was just completely stumped, like could not understand what was going on with fractions. How can you have part of a number? It doesn't make sense. So his mother came up with a plan to help him. She sent him down into the cellar to get some apples and to, to quote from Wampler, quote, 
Then he was instructed to cut these into halves, quarters, and eighths, and to add and subtract the portions, so fractions took on a meaning for him. In addition, he made a discovery that most problems which appear difficult can be worked down into something quite understandable. Well, I mean, that's quite reasonable. Uh, yeah. You know, the, you see more and more of that, I, I'm finding, with uh, mathematical education today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I went to some um, information uh, sessions about how they're teaching mathematics at my son's school. Yeah. And there's a lot more dependency on using, uh, you know, not apples, but like physical representations of, uh, of various values. Right. And creating, yeah, this this physical idea of the numbers you're talking about so that you have – you have a grasp of what the numbers are and not just a, like a paper sense of the numbers. Yeah. I, so again, you know, we often on the show express skepticism about like foundational stories about the people who created companies mm-hmm. and stuff like that because you always wonder like is this really a true story or is this being told for marketing purposes? Right. Uh, but, you know, if we just accept, OK, let, let's say we think this is a true story, I can certainly see things like this I don't know. I, I see stuff like this happening in real life. Like you're talking about yeah. that like maybe math just doesn't make sense to a kid until they have a kind of like key visual metaphor moment. And there there are – I do think these kinds of breakthroughs and, and it makes you wonder about like – I mean, how how many kids are there out there who actually could have, you know, have the potential to have really great math-based careers and a lot of success in mathematics, but they just never had the right teaching approach or never, like, had that moment where suddenly it all clicked? Yeah, absolutely. So on the, the believability scale of corporate uh, um, biographies, I'd give this one – this one was like an eight or a nine. You know, it's <laughs> not like he was visited by the angel of refrigeration with a coiled halo or anything. We're also going to get a Eureka Brain story. That's coming in a second. So he studied engineering at Cornell University, graduating in 1901. So here's the Eureka Brain story as told by the Carrier Corporation. Uh, they, they say that – Genius can strike anywhere. For Willis Carrier, it was a foggy Pittsburgh train platform in 1902. Carrier stared through the mist and realized that he could dry air by passing it through water to create fog. Doing so would make it possible to manufacture air with specific amounts of moisture in it. Within a year, he completed his invention to control humidity, the fundamental building block for modern air conditioning. Now, whether or not this Eureka Brain scene actually happened, that he was actually standing at the train station when he had his breakthrough vision, it does point to the importance of humidity in the creation of Carrier's first air conditioning system. Carrier's air conditioner uh, was not primarily for the purpose of lowering the temperature of a room for human comfort, but for the industrial purpose of removing excess humidity from the air, which could prevent uh, – and the idea was they wanted to prevent humidity from from affecting the properties of ink and paper in a print shop environment. Yeah, a carrier was working at Sackett uh, Wilhelm's Lithographing and Publishing Company in Brooklyn mm-hmm. at the time, and uh, and and you know, I this is a, this is certainly a, a reality that that I that uh, I can relate to uh, the idea of like humidity destroying books and uh, and uh, and messing with your ink. Uh, because there was – it was like a – not last summer. Maybe it was the summer before. I was playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, on a back porch mm-hmm. in like late summer. And it was – you know, we were expecting things to cool down, but things had not really cooled down. It was right. hot, sweltering. It was so sweltering that uh, we had a marker board to uh, like line out the dungeon. And uh, the the erasable markers, the, the ink from them was just like 
beating up and when was just turning into a wet mess. And the player's uh, handbook that I was using at the time, like it just completely fell apart. Uh-huh. Like the the binding, everything got, mo- got moist from the humidity, and it just became just a stack of wet papers. Oh, that's horrible. I mean, it wasn't enough to drive us inside with the air conditioning. but <laughs> You know, there's one thing I don't understand. I've got a really good friend who works in uh, – she works for the Park Service, and she mm-hmm. works uh, in the desert, you know, way, uh, out in uh, at Big Bend National park. And she uh, came to stay at our house recently and she was talking about how much she loved the humidity sitting <laughs> in our backyard. And I just thought that was the most ama- – what Georgian is like, I just love it when it's swampy out like I this. I know. We, we travel out uh, out west and, uh, and we, we admire the, the dry heat. Right. Yeah. And uh, I kind of forget that one could potentially uh, you know, pine after the, the, the moist, thick, humid, swimmable heat of the uh, Georgian summer. And there's a reason related to the air conditioning technology that we've been talking about. There's a reason that so many people prefer the dry heat, which is that in the dry heat, the lower humidity content of the air aids in the evaporation of sweat from your skin, right? The lower the moisture in the air, the, the faster your skin evaporates, which helps keep your body cool. That's why when the humidity is high, heat tends to feel worse. It's like you can't sweat to get the heat out of you. Or you can sweat. I mean, you will sweat, but the sweating is not as efficient in in rising up as gas off of your skin. But anyway, so I guess we should briefly just mention how Carrier's system worked. His method of air conditioning involved blowing air over uh, what what were originally heating coils, which, you know, steam would go through to help heat a room. They were originally hollow heating coils, but instead they were filled with chilled water from a deep artisanal well instead of steam. And this cold water caused condensation of moisture from the surrounding air as that air was blown over the coils, removing the humidity and drying the air in the process. And the plain chilled water system was later upgraded, I think the following year, to include an ammonia uh, compressor, which that's especially good because that'll work during the summer because now you're taking advantage of the lower boiling point refrigerant, which can be uh, expanded and compressed. And while the original air conditioner was just for this industrial purpose of controlling humidity, Carrier did see the potential. If it didn't just remove uh, humidity but also cooled the indoor air, there could be major non-industrial markets for this system adding comfort to human-occupied buildings. Yes, absolutely. And so really out of this, the, the age of refrigeration, the age of air conditioning is born. And it makes its way into industrial buildings, into hospitals first, but then it begins to find its way into other spaces and eventually homes as well. And it, this is the point where we would generally you know, briefly discuss the legacy of a particular invention. But we are going to have to call it and come back and do an entire episode on the legacy of air conditioning because, because I mean, there are some obvious areas where it, it, it's, uh, it's impactful. But it, it really changed the landscape of certainly uh, American life and uh, you know, in, in, in ways that you, you might not even uh, instantly think of. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to come back in a third air conditioning episode to just talk about how air conditioning changed the world. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one. In the meantime, you can check out other episodes of Invention at InventionPod.com. You can check out our other show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You can find both podcasts uh, wherever you get your your podcasts these days. And uh, wherever that happens to be, uh, we would just ask that you subscribe to our shows. 
that you rate and review us if you have the power to do so. Leave a nice uh, remark and recommend us to your friends. Uh, share some of the wisdom uh, that, that we have unearthed for you uh, with the people that you know. And certainly, if you have anything that you would like to add about air conditioning, the history of air conditioning, your like, personal or family history with air conditioning, we would love to hear from you. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Maya Cole and Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 